We're about 30 seconds to airtime, Jeff. Thanks, Linda. Keeper, you ready for another conversation? Oh, the compendium of information available to me is always present and fully accessible, Jeff. We're good to go, Linda. Okay, great. My compendium of information says we're about to go on the air. So stand by, everyone. Cueing music in three, two, and one. Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio, conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. With tonight's host, Jeff Hendler. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio. This is another chapter in the Soul's Waiting Room, and I'm back with my guest, the Keeper of Soul's Purpose. Although he'd say there is no back, his energy is everywhere, and he just shifts it to wherever it needs to be at any moment. Hopefully, you've all been listening to past broadcasts. If not, hold on. We're in the process of emptying the ocean about why the world is the way it is right now. Welcome, Keeper. Hello, Jeff. Good to have you back again, Keeper. I mean, good to have you here. Well, you know what I mean. So what's the conversation for today? Well, Jeff, our last conversation was quite a significant one. I'm just wondering how I went with humanity. It was significant. And just to fill in today's listeners, our last conversation was about messengers. We took a question that came from a listener about the LBGTQ community. If you haven't listened yet, it is available on demand now at www.thevoiceofevolution.com. Just click on radio programs and in the soul's waiting room. The list of episodes is at the bottom of the page. So coming back to you, Keeper, our listeners did send in quite a lot of email in response to the last program. And most of it was very positive, thanking you for offering the perspectives you did. Although there were one or two who didn't quite see things the same way you offered them. Different levels of consciousness create different levels of reality. Not everyone hears the same message, even if they're listening to the same voice and speaking the same words. Great quote from my wall. It's starting to look like the keeper wall, by the way. I'm honored, Jeff. I was thinking, because the last few conversations were pretty significant, that what we might do today is make good on your promise to talk about giant mushrooms and trees. You know, create a little bit of space between the more profound topics. What do you think? Oh, I'm quite open to having that conversation with you. But I assure you, there is significance and profundity in this topic as well. It's certain to take us into other topics, such as mass extinctions and deforestation and your pharmaceutical industry and purpose. Purpose, of course. Of course. So just a caveat about what you perceive as a space between topics. Sensing the enormity of it already, Keeper. Okay, and perhaps we could include some listener questions pertaining to those topics. Oh, I love responding to your listeners, Jeff. All right, so giant mushrooms it is. Now, to do that, I have to take you all back in time over 400 million years. Your scientists call it the Devonian geological period of Earth's history. It was a time when Earth experienced its first significant adaptive radiation. Uh, Are you familiar with that term, Jeff? Adaptive radiation? Mm, No, not sure of that one. Uh, Can you explain it for us, please, Keeper? It was a time when a wide variety of organisms that existed on the planet diversified rapidly into many new forms. Plants, mostly but it was also significant for fish. And can you guess why? Are we going back to the story, the fish that grew legs? Jeff, I don't know what it is that activates you about that, but fish do have a very similar gene set to humans, so they are important to your story. They certainly were important back then. So yes, I suppose we're going back to the story of that fish just for a moment, and only the ones that were programmed to take the evolutionary leap to land, because not all of them were. At the same time, that fish developed the capacity to breathe air in and out of water. 
It was an incredible evolutionary leap for one creature to make at the same time. Actually, things were happening simultaneously in different kingdoms of life. Adaptive radiation. Remember, evolution is always preceded by changes in the environment that challenge the status quo, just like our last conversation about gender identity and preference, if you remember. Got it. And Keeper, I don't really have anything against the fish with feet, quite honestly. I, I mean, I promise. It's just, I believe the human lives are more complex than that. What could be more complex than making the leap from water to land? I'm going to have to keep talking about environment and evolution until you find an appreciation for those fish. <laughs> okay. And perhaps I'll do some of my own research. Or get a fish tank. <laughs> Let me know how that goes if you do. So, my story continues. During this life on Earth, there were no trees, no forests, no ferns, and no flowers. The very first plants were primitive. Think spores rather than seeds, and that's the kind of plant life that existed then. At the end of the Devonian period, by the way, that was also the time of the second mass extinction on Earth. The second. And we've experienced five so far in the history of the planet, right? Yes. And you're teetering on the brink of the six, even as we speak, Jeff. Noted. And I expect you'll say more about that when the time comes. Oh, yes, I will. Okay, thanks. Keeper, what caused the first mass extinction? Well, first, understand that extinction can occur on Earth without any cataclysmic event, such as a volcanic eruption or a cooling. It occurs when any species becomes too specialized to tolerate the variables in its environment. And it's not the same as a cataclysmic event, as you understand it. Specialization could mean very narrow feeding behavior, as an example. Now, in that scenario, the behavior is no longer effective and the species is unable to adapt, at least not in the short time it has to do so. Specialization could also mean as a very narrow defense mechanism against predators. In that case, what happens if a species finds itself suddenly up against a new predator? So you see how it works? I do. And so was the first extinction due to a cataclysmic event or a natural specialization? Well, the first great mass extinction took place at the end of the Ordovician era, which according to any fossil records that your scientists have discovered, Anywhere from 60 to 86% of all terrestrial and marine life worldwide were exterminated. I mean, that sounds cataclysmic. Oh, it was. And that's on record, of course, for your listeners to do their own research if they want. And off the record? The relationship between land and water was compromised. The rising and falling sea levels certainly contributed to that by producing a massive decrease in oxygen, which resulted in an increase in sulfur. Algae and bacteria couldn't clean things up fast enough and the ecosystem basically poisoned itself. Wow. And the second extinction, the one we're talking about right now? That one also began with changes in sea level and the slowing of ocean circulation and depletion of oxygen in the ocean, possibly triggered by global cooling. There's nothing new in the history of the world, Jeff. All that changes is how and by whom. At any rate, before the second mass extinction, there were giant mushrooms called prototaxites. Proto... Proto-taxites. They were about 24 feet tall and three feet wide in your measurements. Now, that doesn't sound incredibly huge when you compare them to present-day trees. However, at the time, they were the tallest life that Earth had ever supported, and they were all over the planet. Well, that would have been something to see. Oh, indeed it was. Wait, 400 million years ago? Seriously? Are you going to tell me that I don't look a day over 200 million years? I'm sure I would if I could see you. I, I forget from time to time because it usually feels like we're just two guys talking. Well, that's the story you tell yourself because it fits your other stories. 
And that's a story I've created. For now. For now. I'm sensing another mystery lurking here in the Shadows Keeper. But okay, getting back to giant mushrooms. I understand there's still such a huge fungal mat somewhere in the United States. In Oregon, I think. I don't remember how big it is, but it's supposed to be huge. Yes, it's a single sentient organism reaching over 2,200 acres of forest. Length and breadth rather than height, but it's impressive all the same. And it's over 2,000 years old. Definitely impressive. And sentient, Keeper? Oh, yes. Fungi sense you and they react to you. As a species of many subspecies, fungi are sentient beings. Whoa. So what's the learning we can take away from this story about giant mushrooms? Well, if I had to offer a perspective, I'd say that even the biggest thing around had to evolve in order to meet the changing environment or else it had to face extinction. Well, ouch, Keeper. That seemed pointed at humanity. Oh, does it? So where does that lead us? You're more closely related to fungi than you realize, and that leads us to evolution. As I said, not every fish had the capacity to evolve, yet there are over 15,000 known species of fish today. Not every plant or fungi had the capacity to adapt or evolve either. And yet today's fungi? Well, there are more than 2 million species, many of which haven't been identified or categorized yet. So some adapted to survive and thrive, while others faced extinction. Over 2 million species? Uh, it's probably a good thing that they're not all as huge as the one in Oregon. Well, let's hold that thought. Going back to the Devonian period, it took more evolutionary events in the plant world before trees appeared, roots and seeds and vascular tissue, meaning the plant had a transportation method for nutrients which are all necessary before anything even resembling a tree could grow. And there was other plant life, of course. Now, just understand that I'm actually simplifying all of this. So while I might say trees appeared, I'm also trying to give you and your listeners some factual earthly context for all of this. The first forests looked nothing like the ones you have today. They were more like a swamp because everything was so hot and humid. Early trees had very few branches which allowed the light to pass through to the floor of the forest. And because of the higher oxygen chemical composition of the atmosphere, there were also giant dragonflies and centipedes. How giant are we talking? A dragonfly could easily be two feet across and the centipedes could exceed nine feet long given the right conditions. There was so much oxygen in the atmosphere at that time that they had to grow larger or they'd all died of oxygen poisoning. As the oxygen levels decreased, so did the size of the insects. I just wanted listeners to have a picture of all that existed at that time and all that didn't. Yes, much appreciated. If I'm hearing it correctly, Keeper, the creation of our world and even its destruction was, well, is, an ongoing and complex evolutionary process, and it's with even more complex, smaller evolutionary changes. Yes, brilliantly said, Jeff. Although trees were what some scientists call a novelty radiation rather than an adaptive radiation, because their presence happened so quickly. It wasn't a series of small steps, rather it was just one or two big ones. And I realize that any broad explanation loses some of the scientific accuracy. So let's call it another fact-checking opportunity for listeners. These conversations seem to have that as a built-in disclaimer, and I get it. I mean, there's just so much to say about all of this. Yes, and so many perspectives from which to see it all. The only other piece of the story that I want to add right now is that there was a convergence at the time. The beginning of photosynthesis, turning light into food, suddenly appearing in more than one organism. So they were all adapting to the environment simultaneously? Yes, and they all adapted with nearly this exact same processing system. 
It's what some of you might call a miracle. A miracle? By design or because of the three lenses? No, wait, wait. All of it. I mean, taking its cue from the other parts simultaneously. So, so both. Very good, Jeff. When humans stop trying to rationalize and compartmentalize the events of your planet, contributions to evolution will feel so much more significant. Now, as these trees and other plant life began taking and adding to the atmosphere, this began a global cooling event, which led to a short and intense glaciation, which ultimately brought on the second mass extinction on the planet. It was another domino effect. And you see, I remember dominoes. Yes, you did. Good remembering keeper. So the appearance of trees contributed to the demise of giant mushrooms. The second mass extinction was largely aquatic. And yes, it's safe to say that trees were a major factor in the extinction of the giant mushrooms. Their appearance impacted everything on Earth, as trees continue to do today. Everything impacts everything else. The balance of the world. Yes, the balance of the lenses in the universe. So, are we ready to take the giant leap into the 21st century? You know, it's funny, I was enjoying hearing about a time before humans, actually. But yes, let's take the leap now. Right. Now, you said before that you were grateful that not all fungi were as large as the one in Oregon. But the fungi of today do create giant ecosystems, and they nourish them and even repair them. And they're part of the ecological food chain, too. Flying squirrels and voles, for example, are dependent on truffles and old-growth forests. The main predator of flying squirrels and voles? It's a spotted owl. This means that killing off truffles would kill off flying squirrels and voles, which would kill off spotted owls, unless you could adapt in time and find another food source. Remember what creates cause for an extinction of species? Well, other than the human predator, that is. The domino effect again. And that's what's happening in our world today. Well, if you lose the prey population, the predator population has no food source, and they will eventually die if they can't adapt. On the other hand, when you lose the predator population, the prey population might increase for a short time. But at some point, it will exhaust its own food supply and its space in the habitat, and then it dies off too. So they both depend on the survival of each other, even though one is preyed upon by the other. It's all about the food chain and the delicate balance of every living thing in nature. This story becomes even more interesting when we begin to talk about the relationship between fungi and trees. And we've all learned something about that, watching movies like Avatar, for example. Do you understand the reference? Oh, you mean the allegory about your own planet and humanity's sense of entitlement? I guess you are familiar with the movie. Well, we've talked about the role of entertainment as a learning tool for humans. You're all drawn to stories. You choose which stories you live by, and then you do everything in your power to manifest these stories, good or bad. What better way for you to open your minds to new ideas or see yourselves reflected back than through storytellers and these mediums of art and theater and film, <laughs> even radio. Even radio. So your forests are connected to the fungi that live symbiotically at the roots of your trees. Most fungi are below ground, which makes it impossible to determine their real size. That giant mat you spoke of may be replicated underground more times than you can count. So, Keeper, are we to be taken over by giant fungi? Is this what you're saying here? And since we're talking about movies, I have to reference this old Japanese horror film. I watched it years ago about shipwreck survivors who slowly transform into giant mushrooms. Matango, I think it was called. It's eerie. Brilliantly filmed and something of a cult classic, at least for people like Japanese horror films. Well, thankfully, mushrooms aren't the least bit interested in consuming humans. Well, not today, anyway. <laughs> But before we worry about what might happen, I want to point out that when we talked about separateness a few episodes ago, 
Fungi played a role in saving those early humans who migrated north from Africa and experienced winter for the first time. They needed to keep warm. And there's a fungus that was the earliest portable fire starter. In fact, it could burn for days while humans traveled and could be used to start new fires as they did. So early humans weren't really rubbing two sticks together as often depicted in your history books. They were actually burning fungi. That's pretty cool. So let's talk about what is happening. The relationship between trees and fungi is critical because trees cannot survive without them. They're smart enough to partner with the fungi eons ago. And without fungi, they would have ceased to exist as well. Why is that? It's a symbiotic relationship. For the trees, there are critical nutrients in the soil that trees are unable to access on their own. So these huge trees rely on the fungi underground to supplement the nutrients they require. And you said this is a symbiotic relationship. So what do the trees give back to the fungi? Fungi depend on trees because they don't manufacture chlorophyll, which helps them produce the sugars they need to survive. It's an incredible example of symbiosis in which every tree and every fungi is involved. And there's more to this story. Different species of trees are able to adapt differently within the same environment. Fungi help distribute what's needed for each species to survive just when it's needed the most. Can you give us an example, Keeper? I'll give you several if you like. Aspen and conifers, which vie for the same territory, have a symbiotic relationship through fungi. Conifers thrive in cold weather. Aspens don't. So the fungi store up food produced by the conifers and share it with the aspens in wintertime. Hmm. Okay. So the fungi act as a supplier between the two, uh, keeping both alive. I sense you're not particularly impressed. So here's another example. Paper birch trees share carbon with Douglas fir seedlings, especially when the seedlings are in shaded areas, which makes survival more challenging. The Douglas fir returns the favor in the spring and the fall when the paper birch has no leaves. Okay, I'm, I'm getting there. Any other examples? Well, I think you'll especially like this one. When fir and pine seedlings are planted together along with specific fungi and the needles are then removed from the fir seedlings, the fir seedlings and the fungi begin transferring not only food, but they transfer stress signals that stimulate strong defensive enzymes in the pine trees. They're literally saying, watch out, something bad is happening, and that helps the pine seedlings build up immunity and food reserves. All right, now that's impressive. I think we've just begun to realize the interconnectedness of everything around us. It seems to be more of a caring world than nature would lead us to believe. Nature can be seen as harsh and cruel, and yet it's all part of the interdependencies of species. Humans have forgotten about this interdependency. And as humans become more aware of them again, your interference will be less destructive. You're already beginning to inoculate soil with fungi when replanting forests especially when there's been a heavy contamination of the soil by chemicals or, or mining activity, for example. Fungi protect trees from toxic minerals as well as from insect predators. Without the added fungi, about 80% of the soils in tropical deforest areas would be too acidic and infertile. Once the forests have been cut down, the essential nutrients wash out of the soil and can't be replaced. You definitely got my attention now, Keeper. I mean, this is amazing. Even more amazing, today's environmental changes are being passed down to future generations of trees. The trees are adapting or evolving, whichever you prefer, even though you can't see it yet. So could we study forestry and learn about ourselves? Is that what I'm hearing? Well, you could study fungi and learn about yourselves. There are implications beyond that which you've discovered so far. Do you know that living trees keep felled tree stumps alive sometimes for centuries by feeding a sugar solution through their roots? I seem to recall reading something like that. 
Trees are very social beings. They're not the individuals you humans see when you take a walk in the woods. Trees protect each other. They help each other grow, sometimes with the help of fungi and sometimes on their own. They understand that they're all important in the scheme of life. Do you think they really understand that? Well, not in the literal sense, perhaps. But they do understand their importance without ego and without words. They do what they're created to do. Do you know that there are mother trees, the big old trees, that have enormous networks supporting the growth and development of seedlings? Sometimes they give up their own root systems to support a seedling. If some natural disaster strikes the forest, it's predetermined by the trees that some will survive and continue the legacy. And humans mirror that process in their own way. We mirror the trees and fungi? Well, they were here first, Jeff, so yes. What's so encouraging about humans continuing to learn from trees is that humans are learning how to manage their use of trees so that under the right circumstances, they actually help promote healthy forests rather than deforestation. Keeper, this feels like a good time to introduce a listener's question. And I know there was at least one about deforestation that if I can find it would keep us on the topic. I'm not even sure what that topic is right now, actually. There's so many ways our conversation could go. Is there any particular way you like to see it go? Well, yes, there is. And I just trust that you choose the right question to do that. No pressure there. Okay. Well, I've got one question from a listener that resonates for me and maybe for you too. Here's the question. I recently returned from a trip to the Amazon sponsored by the Pachamama Alliance and learned how deforestation is diminishing habitat for widely used medicinal plants. Can you talk about medicinal plants and forests? Is everything we need already here? Well, I love the spiritual nature of that question. And the answer to your listener's question requires some backstory about the pharmaceutical industry and its role in the universe. Ah, big pharma. Yes, because it goes back to controlling a population that's larger than those who wish to control it. And how do you do that? When someone truly controls a majority of the planet's population, the web that's created must be impossible to escape. Adding the fact that humans were grateful for a savior when it came to curing disease and allowed it, well, now it's part of all of your stories, and it's an impossibility of epic proportions. I can see how that's true, although I can't quite accept that it's an impossibility. I want to believe that we can create a better care system for everyone, even if it's going to be a tough system to crack. And that's your story, Jeff. Well, let's keep talking about the spiritual interconnectedness of forests. And when we must, we'll refer to the other. Sure. Wherever the conversation needs to go. So the story begins with the perspective that what you see in the world around you is available for the taking and its profitability, rather than seeing the partnership. Not seeing the forest for the trees. Hmm. How oddly unsettling that idiom is. Yes, even though you know you can't just keep taking and not giving back, and in reality, Big Pharma invests just as much in natural medicines of the world as it does in synthetic medicines. But it's in a very different way, of course. Keeper, I know you wanted to stay with the spiritual, but somehow Big Pharma keeps coming up. Well, I believe it is spiritual, Jeff, and not just in the way it's often interpreted. You must realize that your pharmaceutical industry is designed around sick human beings. If humans ceased to be sick, or were less often sick at least, the pharmaceutical industry wouldn't be able to survive as it operates today. Well, it could raise prices, of course, and it has, hasn't it? It has, yes. Uh, Usually citing the rising cost of research is the reason. You know, I even heard of a company buying its rival's products and then jacking up the price over 5,500% of the original cost. 5,500%. No research did that. 
One example was an antibacterial drug that's been around since 1953. Once the drug was acquired, the new company immediately raised the price from $13.50 a dose to $750 a dose. I mean, other companies are jacking up prices for drugs that treat muscular dystrophy and Wilson's disease. I mean, look at the epinephrine injector more recently. That went up 650% overnight. Of course, by the time the insurance companies negotiate the prices, usually the cost is much lower. But doesn't that say that it's all just a game? The pharmaceutical company sets a price and the insurance companies negotiate it. The victim is the person without health insurance or without good health insurance who pays out of pocket. And of course, rarely does an insurance company cover natural medicines. Well, it's in the interests of many to shut down natural medicines. In fact, they spend billions to do so. There are laws that prohibit the import of natural medicines, such as those that cure cancer, which is still the biggest killer of humans in the world. Humans who have this disease are offered a cure that's either legally or illegally obtained and has to be financed personally. Now, how many humans can actually do that? In addition to that, the pharmaceutical industry goes so far as to ensure a dependent population by building side effects into the drugs it produces. What? So, wait. I've always thought side effects are just a given. Well, that's another story you tell yourselves, Jeff. What I'm hearing you say is that they are built into the drugs someone takes when they're sick? I am aware of reports that drugs like cold medicines and heartburn pills can slow down thinking and shrink the memory center of the brain. So I think I get where this is going when it comes to side effects of drugs. The drugs that are advertised on television inform the user that there are going to be side effects. Or more specifically, effects have been known to happen. I believe that's how they position it. And here's where I get pretty angry about things. You know, for example, when antidepressant ads say things like suicidal thoughts have been known to happen, as if it's by accident, and when somebody is already depressed. Some of the side effects sound worse than the disease. Yes, and that's part of this conversation about synthetic medicine. And another topic for another time, human depression. More specifically, the production of seemingly innocuous drugs that you identify as painkillers. They don't just suppress memory function, and they don't just suppress pain. They also suppress feelings of empathy. You'll want to share that resource as well, Jeff. I'm not saying that other side effects also aren't noteworthy. They are. But most healthy humans ingest these painkillers weekly, sometimes daily for pain. What happens when an entire population's empathy is being suppressed? To use your expression from past conversations, you're being played. Big time. Though what's the choice when you're sick or a family member is sick? Well, it's a good question, and we do need to circle back to the topic here, Jeff. So I just want to say that humans will do everything possible to cure themselves or family members, and rightly so. It's a given. And when there's a wanting in the human world, there's always someone ready to step in. Sometimes it's for humanitarian purposes. Uh, other times, it's for profit. It's not about being sick. It's about the shareholders. And you can fact check that, by the way. It's young soul behavior, as I've said in the past. And yet the young souls keep coming and doing more of the same. When natural cures for cancer are not integrated into the healthcare systems and our kids overdose on illegal prescription drugs, it's safe to say there could be more deaths related to the pharmaceutical industry than our illnesses. Human greed is responsible for all of that, Jeff. The only way to change it is to write new stories that include the health and welfare of humans. Now, fungi have their own immune systems. How difficult would it be to study the immune systems of fungi and replicate them for humans since you're all related? Everyone would have healthy immune systems. But where's the long-term profit in that? Jeez. Now, if we're done making the pharmaceutical industry wrong, it is also true that the pharmaceutical industry saves countless human lives as it reaps its huge profits, 
So there's enough validation in the old story to keep it going for quite a while. Oh, I'm wondering, is there any chance that Big Pharma listens to this program? <laughs> Not a chance, Keeper. Well, Jeff, there's nothing worse than a voice that falls on deaf ears, a voice that needs to be heard. But that mustn't stop us from speaking, from speaking the truth again and again. Disease is complex. It's a product of all three lenses, the human soul connection, the environment, and evolution. Which is why you must consider how you care for your environment. Is it like how you care for your bodies? And is how you care for your bodies like how you care for the environment? Many of you abuse both to the point of extinction. So it makes it a very difficult question to ask and answer. And this is the spirituality you spoke of, that there's a spiritual nature to healing that we've forgotten. There's a spiritual nature for healing that's often forgotten. Indigenous tribes honor their healers. In what you call the civilized world, many healers have become part of this big pharma by putting what profits them ahead of their oath to heal. Now more and more of your physicians are beginning to focus on the creative, emotional, and lateral thinking that many indigenous cultures have always associated with healing. In ancient times, the healer was also the priest, as in spiritual healer as well as physical healer, uh, what you call an integrated approach, I think. What will happen in time is less connection to the profitability, less linear mechanical thinking about illness. It's not an either or, Jeff, it's a both and without the greed or hoarding. You humans will create it eventually because you will no longer tolerate the institutionalized separateness between yourselves and what keeps you healthy and alive. Just one more thought before we go back to the forest and medicinal plants keeper. Uh, let's face it, many physicians say they paid a fortune for medical school. All those years of learning, so it's only right they command the salaries they do. What do you have to say about that? Well, I say it's more young soul behavior. Any civilization that equates healing with profitability has a damaged system. And your system is the disease, Jeff, I'm afraid. When we talk about spirituality in medicine, it infers that there's a connection to a higher power and a connection to others. And in many cases, both are missing from this story of Big Pharma. How do we look at all of this through the lenses? Disease is multifactorial. And you might be surprised to hear that the first factor is the first lens, which of course is connected to the soul's purpose. When a soul chooses its purpose, it may include a lifetime filled with trauma or a childhood filled with trauma as an activator for the adult life. You're only just beginning to realize that trauma plays a part in adult-born illnesses. Of course, it's all based on the soul's purpose and what the soul comes to the human realm to experience and learn. And because disease exists in the human realm, it's become an activator of purpose for the soul's realm. If it didn't exist, it would cease to be. Interesting. When I host my other program, my guests are individuals who have experienced trauma or tragedy, and they now use that experience to teach others about resilience and bouncing back. Is this what you're talking about? Yes, in many cases. Illness can be a catalyst for awakening and inspiration and activation, but only because it exists in the human realm as a great source of pain and struggle. Often out of pain and struggle comes awakening, and then from awakening comes teaching. Unfortunately, not always. True. Many of us don't choose to make our personal experiences public. On a spiritual level, many humans believe their trauma is theirs alone, a personal trauma, when most of the time there's a universal purpose waiting for them if they're able to take their trauma into the world and heal and teach. Not every soul is meant to have this awakening, so there's much pain and suffering in the human realm that never heals. And there's purpose there too, you understand. More and more layers. The intricacy would take your breath away, Jeff. When it comes to personal experience, there is awakening in others, inspiration or activation, 
It's something that might never happen if one human didn't share his or her experience in the world. And this is the purpose that you give in the soul's waiting room. I offer purpose and souls step up, so to speak. Those who are meant to awaken, inspire, and activate others from their own personal trauma do so because it's written into their purpose and it's part of their own soul's learning. There are times that obstacles prevent them from doing it. But the interconnectedness of souls and the purpose in the human realm is really that complex. And I know that may be difficult for some of you to accept, but I offer the perspective that everything does have a purpose. You are all here to love and teach and heal each other. Our interconnectedness again. The late Father Thomas Berry said, every molecule in my body was birthed in a star hanging in space. Keeper, is that really true? I mean, are we really stardust? Yes, of course. Ancient stardust from multiple star systems. You know, we've taken a big detour from giant mushrooms. Keeper? I'm here. I'm experiencing that third dimension human overwhelm. I just went back in time as humans began to control the environment, realizing that they could control it. They discovered that money could be made by disturbing the natural order of things. Factories, pills, chemicals, institutional control over who receives care and who doesn't. The pain of millions from millions of diseases caused by environmental conditions, caused by humans and those who seek to control and profit. When you humans feel this, it's clear to me why it seems so impossible to change. I need to adopt one of your human moments to collect all of this energy, if you don't mind. Sounds fair, Keeper. And I'll just jump in with a quick program identification. You're listening to Voice of Evolution Radio, and I'm Jeff Hendler. We're here with the Keeper of Soul's Purpose talking about, well, so many things. Giant mushrooms and mass extinctions. The relationship between trees and fungi. The natural medicinal world in big pharma. And more. Thanks for joining us today. Keeper? Oh, yes, Jeff. I'm ready to continue. For those who may have come to the conclusion that relying on natural medicine isn't sufficient, it's really difficult to say at this stage of evolution. You've created too many resistant illnesses, and it'll take time to recover your natural health as you find greater choice regarding natural solutions. So for that listener of yours, it's not that pharmaceutical companies are destroying the forests and the medicinal plants. They're destroying the forests for the medicinal plants which they either synthesize into something unnatural or assure at least that nobody else can harvest and use it. Huh. Jeff, since we began this conversation with giant mushrooms, have you heard of the wild chaga mushroom? Uh, no, I haven't. What is that? It's called the mushroom of immortality and gift from God. And it's made into a tea or processed into a powder, not eaten directly at its source, which is specifically very old birch and beech trees. And by very old, I mean thousands of years old. And where do you find these trees today? Many places, Russia, Eastern and Northern Europe, Korea, some areas of the United States and in Canada. The high nutrient density of these mushrooms make them a medicinal fungus, and yet it's as ugly as it can be. It's rather humorous to think of something called the gift from God could be one of the ugliest things on earth, isn't it? <laughs> ugly, huh, Keeper? And what specifically does this ugly mushroom do? It's a powerful natural medicine with antioxidants that mitigate the damaging effect of free radicals that harm human tissue and interfere with DNA replication. And if those ancient birch and beech trees don't survive? Here's how life often hangs in the balance. The chaga actually eventually kills the host tree. It is an infestation after all, and it's one that attacks the tree from the inside out. But as more and more of the chaga are harvested, it's the harvesters who do irreparable damage to the trees. 
So either way, it's a problem for the tree. Yes, it's just a question of which happened first. I'm telling you this story about the chaga because humans need to have a much more conscious understanding of the relationships between these things in the natural world. Pharmaceutical companies could become stewards in the future of this planet rather than be like the chaga, which needs its host to live, and yet it kills its host. Hmm, something else here, Jeff. Do you know that every day some 80,000 acres of tropical rainforests are destroyed with an equal acreage degraded in the name of healthcare? That probably doesn't create as much upset as it should for people. How could a human possibly grasp the enormity of 80,000 acres lost every day? Hmm, let me find another way to say this. Ah, I know. One acre is comparable to one of your football fields, actually, and that's pretty much a universal image, isn't it? So right now, there are about 7 billion acres of forest. That's one football field for every human on the planet. You can envision that, yes. You have your own football field that's covered with ancient forest and trees. In fact, it's your football field of forest. Yes, I can picture that, Keeper. Uh, in fact, I can see myself standing in my own football field of forest, as you say. Right. Now, one and a half acres of rainforest are lost every second. Every second. Oh, wait, there goes another one. And another one. And now there's another one. Oops, there goes yours, Jeff. What are you standing on now? Does that have more impact? You're right, Keeper, it does. What do I see right now? I'm standing on this smoldering field of broken and burned trees. My forest is gone. And it's not easy realizing that as we're here speaking. I've got to go back to this idea that we just can't make these facts personal enough. We don't pay enough attention to what we're losing. Only what we're taking seems to be the message here. It's about knowing the outcome and doing it anyway because it isn't impacting us yet. What you've put in motion is the demise of forests everywhere. These pharmaceutical companies and their allies will find less and less resources to make their drugs and their profits. We've already discussed what that means for the human who is ill and desperately requires a cure. If it isn't stopped, you'll all die from their greed. You will die if you don't protect the forests and create relationships with the indigenous people of the forests, at least while they're still here, because without the forests, well, you understand the outcomes of that, I expect. And I'm not speaking about offering the indigenous people financial remuneration for decimating their homes and their land. Instead, it's about understanding how they use the natural medicines of the forest as a model for the rest of the world. How you use natural resources without killing off the supply and how to preserve what you haven't even discovered yet. It feels like a ticking time bomb. Well, because it is. And it's one that might need to go off in order for any change to take place. I hope not. I understand I've taken a cataclysmic perspective here. So here's the other side. There's another finger to point in all of this, and that's about drug trafficking rings, especially those in Central American countries. Well, all over, actually. Your forests are under attack from all sides. So to return to your listener's question about deforestation and medicinal plants, there's no separation there. It's all connected, and it must be seen as such if you're to survive. And interesting, because I've lived in some of those areas, and they see this cultivation of drugs in forests as their way to survive, and without it, they've got nothing else. Anyways, I digress. Surely there are those who are involved in reforestation and preservation, Keeper. I mean, if, if you're going to offer a perspective of hope, we need to mention them here, don't we? Yes, that's true. There are those who are planting trees whose purpose is to plant trees, and some express their purpose by gathering the DNA of giant redwoods and other ancient trees to catalogue and preserve them. There are many interested with the guardianship of these giant beings, as there are those who are preserving the most rare of fungi, 
because without them, humans may not survive. Those souls have chosen this purpose in this incarnation. There's a greater purpose to their work, which we'll discuss soon enough. At the same time, there are many souls who incarnate to witness what's been lost, to mourn what's being lost, and to raise awareness that may protect certain species, and that's animals and plants, from extinction until a tipping point is reached. Is that a hopeful tipping point or something else? A tipping point is a tipping point. When we speak about forests, just understand that the balance is as fragile as what type of trees dominate the forest and even the age of the trees. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. When there is deforestation, the bird species population usually decreases. Less trees, less birds. It's a simple equation. This is true of the bird you call the toucan. The dramatic drop-off in this bird population in Brazil, as an example, is reshaping the forest as you know it, with a very uncertain outcome. How so? And why is it happening? Well, it's happening because the forest's most dominant palm tree depends on the toucan to eat its fruit in order to propagate the species of trees. These trees have very large seeds, and the toucans become the carriers of these trees' seeds, spreading them across the forest and ensuring the survival of these palms. Most of the birds are too small to ingest the larger seeds, so the tree depends solely on the toucan. Ah, okay. So as the toucans disappear... As the toucans disappear, the trees that are genetically predisposed to make much smaller seeds become the dominant trees of the forest. Now, why is that an issue? Well, if I may, Keeper, changing the makeup of the forest has to impact other species as well as the relationship between the toucan and those palm trees with large seeds. It's the domino effect we talked about, or feedback amplification. Yes, and understand that in a hot, dry climate, one that's getting hotter and drier, by the way, a small seed isn't the most viable way to propagate a species. If the forest begins to depend on the smaller seeds and they don't do well, well, the entire ecosystem's at risk. I get the layers keeper and the overwhelm when we try to see the relationship of everything to everything else. And that's only one example. But understand that the preservation of forests doesn't come just from the types of trees. It comes from the age of the trees. Trees that are centuries old provide a valuable purpose in this story. So even as we applaud those who are in their purpose of reforestation, young forests are not as viable as the ones diverse with young and ancient trees. <laughs> Imagine a forest filled with toddlers or teenagers, if you like, much like your current political systems, I guess. That political scenario just isn't going to go away, is it? Saving old growth forests is not just a matter of survival. It's a matter of global defense against disease and the energy crisis you humans face. Wow, we have covered a lot of ground today, literally and figuratively, as I think about it. Yes, and I'm curious, was it that space that you hoped for at the beginning of the program, that space between more profound topics? <laughs> as with all our conversations, everything is profound, and nothing will ever be the same again, Keeper. And as we come to the top of the hour, so how do we wrap all this up? You've talked about giant mushrooms and mass extinction. You talked about the symbiotic relationship of fungi and trees and how the medicinal plants are being harvested at the cost of the forests themselves. You talked about human health, and it's in relationship to the environment, evolution, and spirit. Yes, we did indeed cover a lot of ground, to use your expression, and it's painful to observe so much destruction. If your listeners only knew how important everything is in relation to everything else, that the natural world is so critically important to your own survival. And Keeper, you also said something about us beginning the sixth mass extinction on Earth. You humans are certainly doing everything you can to begin the next mass extinction on the planet, and if you succeed, it will be the sixth. And it'll be the only one that was ever initiated by humanity. Aye, that's a scary prospect. 
and very unfortunate. Well, there's no past event that biologically looks anything like what's happening on Earth today. And some of your political leaders are doing everything they can to create a greater imbalance to move things along. There are also extinction selectors at work here because humans usually target the largest of mammals and marine life as their prey. And that's ego at work, by the way, humans harnessing and conquering the natural world. You target the largest within the species too, because why? Because bigger is better. It may interest you to know that as a result, evolution is creating smaller creatures. So what does that even mean? Smaller creatures are less appealing to us. So nature is making them smaller to try and save them? Bit oversimplistic, but in essence, yes. It creates a cascade, an impact for the entire food chain and not just humans. I guess the real question here is why doesn't humanity believe its own science, Jeff? I wish I could answer that one for you, Keeper. I just don't understand it. I mean, there are those that do believe the science and act on it. We've got to give them a mention here. Yes, there are those who give up everything to throw themselves in front of corporate bulldozers and suspend themselves from bridges to block oil coming into a port. And they're doing so for the sake of the entire planet. But not everyone wants to do that. And in fact, not everyone can. It's not everyone's purpose to be involved that way. But what if it was? What if that's what it would take to change the course of the future? Would you do it, Jeff? Would your listeners? Even if you believe that's not your purpose, what would you choose to do? to know about it and to support it. Somehow it's a good thing, and yet it may not be enough. You're speaking about us as reluctant evolutionaries again, aren't you? The reluctant evolutionary has his or her own purpose, and yet senses that there's a bigger picture. Sometimes I think every soul's obstacle is to fall in love with the material things of this world. It's difficult to sacrifice when you're in love with things. You want to savor it all, not give up anything or any experience. But when you're in love with this world rather than its things, and to love it enough to save it, that's when these reluctant evolutionaries understand that you can love the world and save the world through your own divine purpose. Reluctant evolutionaries are your visionaries and your artists, your writers, your scientists, and your healers. Sometimes they're even your politicians. They are the everyday humans who could take their purpose into the world and help change it, no matter how insignificant it seems to them. They are a special human-soul connection. But they could tip this thing, Jeff. They have the power to be the ones. Well said. So, to the reluctant evolutionaries, I hope that you take that into your world today. I know I will. And thank you, Keeper. This is always enlightening and disturbing and fascinating. So let me sign off with my listeners, and, and then we'll say goodnight, Keeper. So don't go away. This is Voice of Evolution Radio and In the Soul's Waiting Room. I'm Jeff Hendler, and I've been speaking with the Keeper of Soul's Purpose. You're welcome to reach out to me at jeff at voiceofevolutionradio.com or to our producer, Linda, at linda at voiceofevolutionradio.com with any questions or comments. Please also like us on Facebook at Voice of Evolution Radio and Twitter at Voice of Ev Radio. And lastly, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash voiceofevolutionradio if you'd like to help support these programs. Until next time, let's all go out and create conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. Keeper? Yes, Jeff? just wanted to say I'm struck by the enormity of how we've arrived where we are today and 
what humanity needs to do to write these new stories you talk about. Um, I'll admit also feeling overwhelmed after our conversation today. What can I share with you, Jeff, that would help you with your overwhelm? I'm not sure. Well, here's the thing. Even though we both made a passionate plea for evolutionaries to step in and take action that follows their own passionate purpose, who's to say that the world needs to be saved? What? I mean, how can you say that after all we just talked about? Who's to say that the evolutionary journey of humanity and Earth has to be salvation? Species go extinct every hour, and there are humans whose purpose it is to witness that extinction and mourn it. And that's not a passive action, by the way, because in witnessing and mourning, they are awakening and inspiring and activating those who are supposed to hear their message. And yet they may be the ones who begin a quest to stop the extinction of species. Nothing is permanent. And in the past, mass extinctions have been known to happen. Now that sounds like Big Pharma's answer to all those side effects. I'm glad you noticed that because it was my intention that you notice it. So what we choose to tolerate is really up to us. And well, that takes me back to the overwhelm I feel right now. What do you usually do when you're overwhelmed or helping somebody else who is? Uh, my, my process is really just to try and step back and, and look at each piece of what's overwhelming me. Uh, I'm a systematic guy, so then I'm going to approach each piece that way. And, well, I guess that's my answer. It's your gift of self-management to be able to step back. And your gift to others, too. Like the polarities we discussed, you must be able to see the opposite of what you value most in order to make choices about how you speak or act or even what you believe. This is how you rewrite your stories, not from the overwhelm itself, but by being able to step in and out of it and to make your own choices. You know, Keeper, I think that would be helpful to say on air next time. Well, then we shall, Jeff. Thanks, Keeper. I'll let you go. Until next time. Until next time.